Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski. And today, we got a round two with a man with a new job. He's selling enterprise over at Lattice. It's Anthony Natoli. Nick, why should people listen? This episode reminded me of a quote that my high school wrestling coach said to me, which is, if you want to be a great wrestler, you have to be disciplined. And the definition of discipline is doing what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it. And Anthony is extremely disciplined and process-driven in the way that he carves up his territory and plans out how he is actually going to prospect. And he is also disciplined in the way that he spends his time learning about his company, right? He switched jobs recently, and he didn't delve into the encyclopedia of every last little thing about what the new company did. He focused on the problems that he solved, and he used that to inform his prospecting and get up to speed extremely quickly. So if you have changed jobs, if you are planning on changing jobs, If you just want to be a more effective prospector, Anthony is a must listen. And in starting Anthony's new job, what he had to do is he had to rebuild all of his problem statements and also develop his very own three-step prospecting drip that he's been using at Lattice. And guess what? He's giving that away for free. And so you can get that in the show notes if you want to steal the way that Anthony Natoli is writing his sequences and booking a whole grip of meetings. And three, two, one, let's ride. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90 Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. This actionable tactic on selling to power is sponsored by Sales Loft. Don't start from zero when a champion introduces you to power. Explain the three to four priorities you learn from the champion, but then ask them to validate what's really important to them or what we missed. And we partnered with Sales Loft to give you a whole bunch of talk tracks on selling to power. The link is in the show notes. Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with Rocket Reach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox. If I don't get a reply in two days, that means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time, every time you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes.
All right, Anthony, welcome back to the show. You might remember we start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways. So let's get your three. Number one, use a five-step process to organize your prospecting and stop winging it for good. An example, on Monday, go account-based and choose five to seven accounts, plus or minus a few, depending on how many accounts you own, and focus on those for the week. Also on Monday, spend 30 minutes finding three to five prospects per account and verify their email and number before sequencing them. Five minutes later, enroll them in a persona-specific sequence based on problem statements. Then spend five to 10 minutes per account finding a relevant trigger, whether that be persona or account-specific, to use as your anchor for why you're reaching out. Batch tasks into specific niche time blocks. For example, Tuesday morning, I'll execute a 30-minute call block, and during the 30 minutes, I'm only making calls. Same for emails, voicemails, and follow-up, et cetera. Beautiful. What's number two? Number two, create a problem statement framework to scale relevancy in your cold calls and emails. We all know it's near impossible to send 50 personalized emails in one day, but you can send 50 relevant emails by knowing these three main things. Number one, the problem that you solve for that specific persona, the negative consequences of not solving that problem, and number three, how you help solve that problem and how you've helped similar personas like them before. Go and write these down before you outbound your next week. And at the end of the day, prospects are booking meetings and buying software based on problems. So let's outbound with that in mind. Beautiful. Round us out, Anthony. What's number three? Number three, the first three emails of your sequence should be a thread of a relevant intro, a relevant bump, and social proof. Here's an example. Email number one, you want to introduce the problem you're solving relevant to the persona and use a close-ended CTA like, is this on your radar at all? Email number two, you want to bump that initial email with relevant context. So something like, any thoughts on this considering, given, knowing, and then inserting that relevant observation. Email number three is going to be a reply to those first two emails using social proof of how you've solved that problem in the past. Example could be a customer story. And guys, if you want to steal that three-step email sequence, you can actually catch that in the show notes. But let's go back to this framework because in the prep, you were talking about how the problem statement is the backbone for every email you write, for every cold call you make. So let's start there and then let's go to the actual emails and calls. So you mentioned three steps to building this problem statement. The first is what's the problem you solve. The second is the negative consequences. The third is how you solve it. Could you walk through what that actually sounds like at a company like Lattice, just so it sounds a little bit more real and crisp to someone who might be trying to make this themselves? Absolutely. So it has four or five different columns. And the first one is persona, right? So at Lattice, we sell to an HR leader. I know based on other HR leaders we work with, based on our customers, that one of the things that they're focused on right now, I'm solving, is a lack of employee productivity, right? So I'll start there. That's the problem that I'm focused on, trying to find if other prospects have that same problem. Now, I want to understand what are the negative consequences of not solving it. And so something like, well, if employees do not get feedback on the work that they're doing or don't know how to develop in their career, then that causes a lack of engagement, a lack of productivity. And with that, the symptom to that negative consequence is that managers don't have tools that they need to talk about their team's goals or career growth conversations, which can lead to misaligned expectations and potential performance issues. So now what I've done is I've gathered the problem the symptoms of those problems and some of the negative consequences of not 
looking at that problem or trying to solve it. Why don't we start with cold calling? We wanted to weave that into a cold call. What would that, my guess is you're not just saying, well, typically, and then you go all the way through all three of those steps. How do you surface that statement inside of a cold call? Yeah. So you could use one of many openers, but once you get like permission to explain why you're calling, I would say something like, hey, people leaders like yourself are moving to a more continuous performance and feedback culture in 2023, trying to focus on employee productivity. But the problem is that managers, they don't have the tools that they need to talk about their team's goals and career growth areas and conversations with their people, which leads to misaligned expectations and potential performance issues. And then I would ask them a question about how they're handling that process today. Because what I've done is I've introduced what I know to be a relevant problem for that persona because every HR leader is focused on increasing employee productivity, especially in a economic downturn, because you're trying to make the most of your employee workforce today. So I already know calling them, like they're probably focused on this. They're either trying to solve it manually or they're using a competitor. Both are great outcomes. So I'm just trying to start that dialogue to understand how they're approaching solving that problem. So what you're sort of doing is you're giving the background of like, hey, here's sort of the domain in which I'm calling about. You're helping orient them around the element of their job that you help solve problems related to. Because there's a lot of things that an HR leader does that are totally unrelated to what you help with, I imagine. And so what you're doing is you're being like, look, here's sort of the area around that I help with. Here's the problem that I think you may be experiencing. And then what you're doing that's different than some of the ways that like I've cold called in the past is you're, you're not saying, hey, here's how we help that. What you're doing is you're asking them, how are you solving that now? And I suspect the reason for it is so that you can get some more info and that sort of crafts how you might pitch down the line. What do you do in this scenario where they're like, yeah, you know what? We are on a competitor of yours. Oh, I've heard of Lattice. We're using ABC Corp. What's your approach following up to that? I would say that's great. It sounds like you've had a problem in the past and you've got buy-in to invest in a solution to try to solve that before. I'm curious, like what's going really well with ABC Corp today? And then I would also ask, why did you invest in them in the first place? What problems were you trying to solve? And then I'd ask them, how well is that solution helping you solve those problems? And I'm trying to get into that dialogue. And when you start with what's going well, on the back end, there's usually a but. And then that's where you can start to dig in a bit. So I guess the competitor one's a harder one to overcome. I, I actually am curious... What happens when they just respond and they're like, you know what, that is something that we've been we've been dealing with. We got some spreadsheets put together and we really just try to encourage the managers to talk to the team. Like, how does the conversation typically play out when things go well for you and you do book a meeting on the phone? As soon as I get them to validate they have that problem, I'm trying to sell the meeting. Mm -hmm. With the approach that I'm taking of introducing the problem, all I'm trying to do when I'm reaching out to prospects is figuring out if they also are focused on this initiative or this problem that I know other HR leaders are focused on. If they're like, hey, this is like number 10 on our list, probably not the right time. I'm not trying to force that. But if they're like, yeah, we're in Excel today. It's a nightmare. I'd be like, great. You know, that's honestly something I hear often. And I'd, I'd ask them about like how that how that's going. And then I'd get into a little bit of discovery. I'd be like, how is that affecting the day-to-day -day or the business or whatever it is. So I, I would get into a little bit more discovery. And once I've got a problem that's validated, then I'm going into, hey, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Again, I know I called you out of the blue, but it sounds like you're struggling with A, B, and C. And I just mentioned how we can help with that. 
like, are you opposed to scheduling 15 minutes or whatever to, to learn more about how we can help? This is awesome. And so what you've identified is you have your problem statement and that problem statement allows you to open up a conversation and you have a very, very, almost a mini discovery flow that's designed to get them to say that, yes, I have this problem. And the moment you get there, you're out of this call. Anthony, one thing that I've seen the sellers make the mistake of is they try to turn the cold call into an entire discovery call. If you look at the entire length of this call, give or take, if I'm a seller, naturally it's always going to vary, but is there a magic moment or sort of like a time range where you know the call is getting hot and you want to get off of it? Or in other words, how long is a successful cold call typically taking you? I would say it's between seven and nine minutes, weirdly. Anything over 10 minutes, I'm probably like going into all about lattice and like feature dumping on them. And I probably have done too much, but under 10 minutes, what I've done is got them to validate the problem. And then I've gotten a couple, I've gotten them to verbalize a couple of negative consequences of what their current process is. Now that allows me to summarize and sell the meeting. But what it also helps me do is make sure that they show up to the meeting. So I'm not just booking a meeting to book a meeting. I've now booked a meeting with like real concrete problems that they verbalized that I can use in my follow-up to increase that show rate. So usually seven to nine minutes after I've identified that they verbalize, yes, I have this problem. And here are a couple things that are uh, negative consequences of having this issue today. Can you walk through what that follow-up would look like and how you prevent no-shows? Yes. So I will send them an email right after the call, almost like a, a mini like discovery call follow-up. Hey, thanks for taking the time. Again, this is why I reached out and insert the problem. You had mentioned you're struggling with this and a couple of things that are happening as a result are A, B, and C. Looking forward to sharing how other customers have solved that same problem and then maybe giving them an example of a customer that we've worked with. And then the day before that meeting, I'll bump that and just remind them. They'll probably look at their calendar for the next day. I've got this meeting. What's it about? So I want to share again, like, this is who I'm meeting with. This is why I should care. And I'm going to get something out of it. So that's the goal of when I'm sending a follow-up. So let's say in the best case scenario, they show up. You're fine. In the slightly worst case scenario, they will say, Anthony, one day before, I actually can't make this meeting. Can you talk through what your rebooking process looks like? And then I want to talk about a straight up no-show. Yeah. So first thing I'll do is probably call them because it's way easier to get like the the thing behind the thing on a call. So that's what I'm looking to do when I'm when I'm really understanding why they're not showing up. I'll resurface like, hey, you'd mentioned that you were struggling with A, B, and C. Like, I'm curious if that's still on your radar uh, of solving right now. And then they usually give me like, hey, I actually talked to so and so, and this is not a priority. Or yeah, I actually found out we're using your competitor. Or they'll give me the real objection. So that's the goal with finding out why they pushed. The best case is like they pushed because something came up. But in the case that it's not, my goal, whether it be through email or call, is to understand the real objection of why they couldn't make it. The beauty of what you're doing on a cold call to get that verbalization of them having a problem, you could just use that. You're not like pitching them. You're using their words and putting the ball back in their court. And so you could say something like, hey, sounds like you've given up on solving 
for decreased employee productivity or my way off, you know, something like that in your messaging or if you call them. Anthony, I'm curious, how much does your messaging change here? Because for everyone who doesn't know what Lattice does, one of their, essentially the, the product that they're most famous for amongst other things is they're a performance management tool, right? So you can run performance reviews, et cetera. I would say if you're prospecting in the mid-market or enterprise, which I know you are, right? Very rarely do these companies not have any sort of performance tool. You probably even know it because at Lattice, you've been prospecting for a minute. And so what do you do when you know they're on a tool? How does your messaging change? There's a couple of ways my messaging changes. So in the problem statement framework, you want to identify at least three to five problems per persona because that's going to help you create more relevant touches for different threads in that sequence. Now, if they're using a competitor, I'm still going to use this because I want to get them to, to verbalize that and know that it's okay to tell me that they're using a competitor, right? If I like call it out in the email, they may be like, oh, this is the salesperson trying to rip and replace this competitor. I'm more asking them about a problem that they're running into. I want them to tell me, hey, we're using CultureAmp for this already. I want them to tell me that instead of like, me coming off as the salesperson who's trying to come in and change everything and blow it up. So I'm curious, do you have similar problem statements then mapped out for competitors like CultureAmp or 15.5 or whoever it might be? If I know someone is on CultureAmp or 15.5, I'll create a similar problem. We call them a defensible differentiator. So something I know that 15.5 or CultureAmp can't do that I know is important to solving that problem. So I'll create that in my in my sequences as well. So could we use that as an example? So let's say that you have someone saying, I'm on Coltramp, right? What might be a defensible differentiator? And can you walk us through how you'd weave that into a reply to that email? Coltramps, their, their bread and butter could be engagement surveys. Where we know that we are different and better is with our performance management solution. And there's nuanced features and, and functionality that do make a difference for the outcomes that you're trying to drive. But what I do know is because of some of the limitations that they do have, it becomes really hard for people to get 360 feedback from their peers, from their managers at any given moment in time. So I'll use that in my email as a reply and say, hey, come across Coltramp a lot. We've actually moved over quite a handful of customers in the last six months from Coltramp, and here's why. And then I'll go into that defensible differentiator and then get their thoughts on that. So that's my goal is to acknowledge Coltramp and say, it's great that you're using it. Share that we run into them often, but there's companies like yours moving to Lattice and here's why, relevant to the problem that I introduced. What's fascinating is you're still using the same problem statement and you're almost using the problem statement in your prospecting to get to the truth of the solution that they're on. And by doing that, you can then handle the real objection. And so Anthony, I know we didn't plan to go here, but my question for you is, let's say the person agrees to a call. My guess is your green field or when someone is on spreadsheets, discovery call flow is pretty different from your rip and replace culture amp discovery call flow. Can you talk through maybe some of the high level differences in terms of how you run a competitive discovery call versus a traditional discovery call? My traditional discovery call, the three things that I'm trying to get 
out of that call is why'd you take the call? Why change what you've done historically and why do it now? Right? Like when someone comes to Lattice, I'm like, well, why change now? Like you've done things a certain way. Like why does this matter to do this now? So that's how I run a traditional call. And then for competitors, I'm acknowledging it. I'm like, hey, know you're on Culture Amp today. I want to start there. You bought them in 2021. Like, how did you go about that process? And what were you really looking to solve with Culture Amp? And how has that evolved since then? So, what I'm doing there is getting them to verbalize their previous state before investing. And now, what has changed since then? And then I want to ask them, like, what's going well with that process? And again, similar to the cold call, there's usually a but, right? Even if they're like going off and like they're, Coltramp fanboys or fangirls. I'll be like, listen, sounds like sounds like everything's perfect. And then I'll just pause. And they're like, oh, not everything's perfect. And there there is this issue with X, Y, and Z. And then dig into that a bit. So that's kind of how I would do it is I'm not here to like rip and replace Coltramp today, but I do want to understand like, why did you go to your CFO and get money approved to invest in it? Like, what were you trying to solve? And then I'm trying to go in there and understand if there's anything that they're missing that I know that we could help with. And obviously throughout that, sharing customer stories of like, hey, you remind me of this company. They switch from Coltramp. Here's why. Like, how does that resonate with you? Like, are you experiencing that today? I want to ask you about the scenario that you sort of alluded to where it's like they bought this competitor, Coltramp, two years ago, and you're on the discovery call and they've got some good with it, but they also have a couple bad pieces with it. And I found one of the hardest things to do when you're doing a rip and replace like that is overcoming the inertia of, it's particularly that initial inertia, right? If they saw six demos of Lattice, you could probably wow them enough and dig into the pain enough to get them to be like, okay, we need to make this switch. But in the very beginning, you sort of have to strike a fine line between you've got a 30 minute call with them and you sort of need to do some discovery and figure out where their head is at, the problem they're dealing with. But if you don't give them anything about how Lattice can actually help them and make it worthwhile to explore changing, they're going to end that call and be like, look, like, I'm sure this is helpful, but it's just probably not worth all of the, the time we have to put into doing our due diligence and investigating this. And so I'm curious, like, how you sort of divvy up those 30 minutes or however long your first call with somebody is to encourage them to actually evaluate your thing. So you have to make sure that you're not too low level because if you're with like an HR BP, they don't have any influence. So that's number one is making sure that you're talking to someone with a bit of influence. And the way that you do that is asking them about the evaluation. And if they can't answer it, that means they weren't part of the evaluation and you're with the wrong person. So that's number one. So if they can't give you any info about why they invested in it, you're probably with the wrong person. So that's that's the first thing. Second thing is when you understand something that's missing, that there's a gap, you say, well, what's that preventing you from doing? Oh, and if you could do that, why would that be important? And if you did that thing, what would it mean for the business? So now what you've done is you understood this gap and you've gotten them to verbalize that this gap that they thought wasn't a, that big of a deal is actually probably something that they should think about. And then when you're going through your pitch, you're telling a story about, hey, you'd mentioned that there's a gap with this thing and it's preventing you from doing this. And if you could do that thing, it would mean X, Y, and Z. Like, I want to share like Reddit, for example. They were experiencing something similar and this is what they were able to accomplish with Lattice. And then trying to sell them on that value rather than, everything that's going well, 
Lattice can do all that. But let me dig into what's missing with you today and why companies are making the switch. Anthony, one thing that both you and I have experience in is we both sold to HR. You're selling to HR. I did a PAVE as well. And HR is oftentimes a cost center. So you get them to this magic moment where they finally say, yes, this is the negative consequence. Here's how we can go about solving it. But the problem is they need to get a CFO to actually care about it, or they need to get other people to care about it. Can you talk about how you make sure that this problem turns into a check once you need to go to people outside of HR? Yeah, I think it's something you can do is like straight up ask them like, hey, when you're in your meeting with your chief people officer or your all hands, is this is this one of the things that they're talking about? Like, is this a theme that they're talking about? And if it is, great. If not, be like, where do you think this would lie on the priority list if you took this to your CFO? And I would ask them, I would say, if you went to your CFO tomorrow and said, hey, I know we got cold tramp, but really love this about Lattice, like how would you sell that to them? And would they care? So that's kind of like how I'm, te- I'm, I'm testing them a bit in that first call to see if it's even plausible to, to move forward to a next step. Because if they're like, yeah, the CFO has like nine other things on his list, then maybe we should revisit when it's closer to renewal time. And I'll actually probably DQ that. I'm not afraid to DQ if I know that this is number 10 out of 10 priorities that they have. It's probably just not worth anyone's time at that point. I love that question you're asking. How are you going to sell this to them? We, I, I learned it recently when we had Morgan Mello on the show, and she talked about, she'll always ask, how are you positioning this internally? And it can be so telling when you ask them, like, how are you going to sell this to your team? Because if they push back on that, you know they're just going to go, dump it in the trash, or they might explain it wrong. And you might say, hey, you might actually consider explaining it this way. It is such a great question to ask. I recently stole it and added it into my question. So I'm glad you're asking it too. You talked about that point of DQing. And I'm also aware that since we last had you on the show, you have changed jobs. And so you had a new territory, a new company. And I don't imagine you just woke up and on the first day after training, you started ripping relevant emails. I imagine you sort of put together a plan for how you were going to carve up your territory and where you were going to spend your time. Can you talk to me about the intentional efforts that you had in your first, I don't know, 30 to 45 days to get yourself up to speed as effectively as possible? I think one of the biggest mistakes that new sellers make and folks that join a new company is trying to be like a product expert. The reality is you're not going to be a product expert in the first 30, 60, 90 days. It's impossible. So I realized as I'm meeting with all these people, they're telling me how great the product is. And I was like, this is too much. What problems do we solve? Like, why does this matter? Why do people invest six figures into our solution? So I started there. And then I literally used, no joke, the problem statement framework and I identified top personas, top problems. Then what I did was I went through my accounts and I filtered things like previous closed lost ops. If there wasn't previous closed lost ops, I would go into my sales engagement tool and I'd look at who's ever opened an email, who's replied to an email, who answered a cold call, right? And I will start to prioritize those individuals at those accounts to start to prospect. And then what I was able to quickly do is use the problems that I know those personas had and use that in my outreach without having to be a product knowledge expert. So that's how I went about it. And then I'd use, 
actionable tip number one, I would select five to seven accounts per week. And I still do that. I literally did that this morning. I got 10 new accounts. I literally went through those five accounts, filtered by who opened an email, who had a live conversation, went to SalesNav to make sure that they still work there, verified their contact info on Zoom info, put them in a sequence. And then after we get off this call, I have a 30-minute call block and I'm going to execute my first call task and then go into my three-step email process. It doesn't have to be complicated when you're starting in a new territory. It could seem overwhelming. But if you understand that at the end of the day, if a CPO is going to buy your solution, it's because of a problem they're trying to solve. Why not just prospect with that in mind? Like Prospect with those problems and see if they're focused on them. Because those are going to be your highest value opportunities. If you can get someone to validate that they're working on this problem, the chances of them closing are higher than you just booking a meeting to book a meeting based on product and feature type emails or just spray and pray approach, if you will, or random personalization that doesn't relate to what you solve. Can you talk to me about the daily schedule that you commit to? Because I know we were talking in the pre-show, like you've recently committed to like sort of going through this fitness uh, transformation where you're exercising more and you're also ramping in a new job. And I know you're also really active on LinkedIn. And I have to imagine you have a, a fairly rigorous daily schedule. Can you talk through sort of how you go from start to end of the day from a week perspective? Totally. So I'll start and preface by this. Not every day looks the same. Because I'm an AE, I've got calls on my calendar already. So what I'll do if I'm looking at, let's just imagine today's Sunday and I'm looking at Monday, I'm going to look at the existing calls on my calendar and then I'm going to look at the white space and then I am niche time blocking. So for me, I know if I just put a prospecting block, I'm leaving room to negotiate with myself of what do I do? So I'm very specific. So at 8.30, I may put find five new accounts and put five new people at each account into a sequence. For that hour or 30 minutes, that's all I'm doing. My next white space open on my calendar may be at 12 o'clock. Maybe I'll do a 30-minute call block, right? So the takeaway is that at the end of each day, or if it's you know the start of a new week, I'm looking at my existing calls on my calendar, whether, whether they be demos, pricing calls, disco calls. And then I'm using the time around that to make sure I'm executing the controllable activities that I know are going to help me build pipeline, which is adding new people to a sequence, making calls, sending emails, following up on LinkedIn. And so if I end the day on Monday at 5 p.m., I'll reflect on the day. What happened? What did I do well? What did I learn from you know potential things that happened during the day? And then I'll go through the same exercise. Maybe I've got three hours the next day and I can use that and, and divvy it up as I best see fit for my prospecting activities. All right, Anthony, we are running out of time and we got to move ourselves to the final question. And the final question is this. We've talked about a lot of really great things salespeople should be doing. Now I got to ask you about a shouldn't. And so the last question is, what's one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to break because it hurts them more than it helps? Yeah. So as much as I love outreach and sales engagement tools, Reps, SDRs, they need to stop using their sequences and their cadences as they hope for a silver bullet. You need to be the quarterback of your sequences and make audibles when necessary. Don't let the sequence or cadence control your destiny. Make sure you are leveraging the data from those touch points and the prospect engagement to make audibles throughout your sequence. So if someone opens your email three times, don't wait 
until the next step to reach out, right? Take advantage of that data. Killer. Anthony, thank you for joining us. Everybody stick around for a 60-second recap coming up soon. This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. Otter AI's Otter Pilot for Sales gives you the freedom to sell on your discovery calls by taking notes for you. One of the best ways to deepen your discovery is to ask your prospect about the impetus behind their goals. So when a prospect tells me they want to advertise on more sales podcasts, I'll say, well, it's not every day that you wake up and decide you want to sponsor a podcast. What's causing you to even explore this in the first place? Now, we put together the ultimate discovery checklist with our friends at Otter AI, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Today's sales email tip is brought to you by Lavender. If you want to get more replies to your sales emails, try removing exclamation points and question marks from your email subject lines. They cause open rates to plummet. Instead, make the subject line feel internal. It should be short, one to three words, and it should showcase the topic of the email, but also be about them. We sat down with Lavender and built a sales email framework guide with emails for every step of your sales process. And there is a link in the show notes to get it for free. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Anthony Natoli include, number one, on a cold call, get permission, then lead with the problem statement and the negative consequences that that persona will typically have, and ask how they're addressing it today. And as soon as you get validation that you found a problem, book the meeting. Number two, in a normal discovery call, work your way from why they took the call to why change at all to why change now. Number three, in a competitive discovery call, you're still going to go through those motions, but you're going to start with when they bought the solution originally, why they bought that solution, and how their experience has been since then. And lastly, number four, when you're trying to figure out where you stack up on the priority list, you can ask one killer question. That question is, when you're on an all hands, is this something people are talking about? All righty, Nick, how can people help us out? Well... We've talked about, you can go steal all of those things that Anthony put together for us. But if you haven't looked at our show notes, we have a bunch of resources there that we put together with a bunch of our sponsors and partners and guests. And so every now and then you might want to peruse the show notes and go steal some of the stuff that we've put together for your selling pleasure, enjoyment, or just effectiveness. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week on 30 Minutes to President's Club. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90-Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes.
Did you know that 60% of proposals are viewed on a mobile device, which means if you're sending a tech stock or a slide deck, the formatting is going to look really ugly and you're going to make a bad impression. Luckily, our friends at Quiller are here to help. Quiller pages are built on the web, which means they're mobile responsive and they actually look good on a cell phone. And Quiller is having an offer right now to upgrade your proposal from an ugly tech stock to a Quiller page for free. So you can see what your boring proposal looks like as a beautiful Quiller page. There is a link in the show notes to take advantage of the offer.